0: Says, get that India, big boy! a
1: Call an ambulance! what a shot! What a shot! Campbell killer! Hello and welcome back to another edition of the Tip Sheet podcast. As always, I'm your host, John, also known as Forty Twenty. Joining me to preview a couple of the biggest games of the season for the Parramatta Eels in both the NRL and NRLW is my good mate Sixties. How you going, Big Phil? We've been very busy this week.
0: Uh, we have been very busy, mates. Uh, the nerves are starting to kick in on what is effectively match eve for the Parramatta Eels. I was up there at training last night. The fellas look uh, fit and fresh and ready to go. And uh, we we thought the same last week, but it, it didn't quite pan out in the match. Uh, but yeah. I'm really pumped, looking forward to tomorrow night.
1: And of course, it is a little bit of history for the NRL with the Parramatta Eels and the Canberra Raiders meeting for the very first time in finals football this week. And to share that slice of history with us, none other than Bernie Gurr, breaking down what happened last week with the Penrith Panthers, sorry, and looking ahead to how the Eels can take down the Canberra Raiders. Bernie, good morning. Happy to have you on the show once again, mate.
2: Morning, boys. How are we? Good. Very good.
1: All right, Bernie, let's start talking about the loss last week. Ripped the bad off from the get go. Can you list what went wrong against the Penrith Panthers? I mean, there's some obvious stuff in terms of Mitchell Moses getting injured and the Eels, you know, bombing a few chances here and there. But below the surface, what else was there?
2: Yeah, look, it's one of those things where, um, you know, things are rarely as good as they seem, but they're, they're rarely as bad as they seem, too. And I know there's been a lot of. Uh, you know, negative discussion around the result of the game and the scoreline coming out of that game. But it was, it was a, you know, it was a fascinating game. And most of those games between high-level teams and important matches, they come down to usually, a, you know, a few key factors. And, you know, I'd have to say that, uh, you know, Pan- the Panthers won the battle of the grind. I think we spoke, spoke about this last week. I think I'll expand that to say they won the battle of the grind and the kick. And by that, I mean, we talked about last week of getting into the grind, but we also spoke about the fact that no one stays in the grind for the entire 80 minutes like the Panthers do. They, they're they seemingly tireless. They just keep going and going. What that meant was they forced some errors on the Eels' in the second half. They dominated field position. But I think it's important, you know, in a you know, critical analysis of the game to look at that 60-minute mark where Mitchell Moses went down. Um, the score was 13-8 at that point. Uh, Eels were competing very well. Um, having said that, across the entire game, there's a few key indicators that um, indicated Penrith were just a notch ahead. For example, the position was roughly even, but the Panthers' running metres was 17.59 versus mm. 13.40, which is a 31% increase in running metres. The post-contact metres of the Panthers was 6.13 metres versus 4.69 for the Eels, a 30% increase. And that was on effectively similar number of sets the panthers had 42 sets and the eels had 40 um one of the key features there was the completion rates of the teams the Eel, the, the panthers were at 83% and the eels were at 67 the eels were doing well earlier but in the second half their their completion rate fell away badly yeah, too so you know all of those stats are t- tend to be indicative of the team winning the collision, winning the grind, winning the field position battle. Their kicking is better. Um, and that's what the Panthers did. What that all meant, too, was when we got the ball, we, we didn't seem to be able to get our attacking game on. And that was due to the, you know, the Panthers' line speed, their intensity, their pressure. And at times, it just appeared that we were playing in a phone booth. Um, we couldn't get any rhythm with our attack. We certainly weren't getting any width in our attack. In you know the lead up, the three wins we had leading into this game, we were getting very good width in the appropriate field position to bring out, bring you know Lane Brown, Gutherson, Cedo, that lethal left side that's been pretty effective for three weeks. Um, they couldn't, we couldn't get the rhythm, we couldn't get the field position and the momentum to bring that to bring those guys into our game. So that left side didn't come into the game. And layer on top of that, we had some average sets I thought when we were in the red zone and. You know, losing Mitchell at the sixty-minute mark. You know, he was playing so well. he's kicking. Up to that point, he, him and Clary had given a masterclass on how to kick with all different types of kicks, and um, they were both playing very, very well up to that sixty-minute mark. So w- when he went off, we lost that. We lost that. We lost our best player. We lost, mm-hmm. lost you know, an elite player, and his kicking was critical, and not just his kicking, but also his general organisation. Um, so there's some of the factors one other thing just while I think of it is I don't think coming out of trouble we got enough productivity out of our back five Penrith's back five was unbelievable Um, if you added their back five versus our back five not just in meters but in where they did it when they did it how they did it they would they would have won that battle convincingly so there's some of the factors that I saw coming out of the game Um, it was a fascinating game to watch and you know, you had a sense at the 60-minute mark that they were on top marginally, Panthers. But, you know, at the end of the day, it was four tries to to two. They got um, – four, sorry, four tries to one. They got – two of their tries came off kicks. One came off a unique piece of play by Cleary. And the other – they only got one try off, off structure. So – you know, it, it was a it was a fascinating game. But, you know, clearly the Panthers deserved to win. But losing measures was critical for the Eels.
0: Yeah, and you, you mentioned about uh, Cleary and his elite play. Uh, being there, just watching the pace at uh, the way that he took the ball up to the line and how deep he digs into the line before he passes, it really puts defenders in two minds as to whether he's taking them on or whether he's feeding it to supports it's it's fascinating and
2: impressive to watch it is but it's all off the back of um it's all off the back of the that domination of the Ford pack and they, they were clearly winning that they were winning the battle but the eels were hanging in there quite well but he was so when he had it particularly when you moved into the second half and they were clearly getting on top and they were on top even before mitchell went off albeit the eels were very much in the game um when you're playing off the back of that dom- of that forward pack, it's a you know it's a thing of beauty for a, for a halfback or a playmaker. Remember back to State of Origin where he wasn't playing off the back of a dominant forward pack, even a player with Cleary's qualities. And I have a huge rap on Cleary, the, the superstar. Um, even the superstars they can get grounded um, when their forward pack's not going forward, as happened in Origin three. Yes, um, and now that you you talk about the uh, the points that.
0: Penrith were able to accumulate those tries. So the scoreboard got slightly ugly in the end. I thought it was a tough, um, you know, maybe a bit rough, indicating how the match played out. But was there anything that you liked about the
2: Eels' performance? Absolutely, there was. And now people think, well, that's a funny thing given the scoreline. But unlike you, I think the scoreline, it did get a little ugly. Um, and people tend to look at the scoreline you know, particularly the media people, they, they have this amazing recency bias. You know, if a team scores two tries and suddenly they're you know, 18 ahead, whereas, you know, two minutes, five minutes ago, they were only two ahead. It's, it's like, you know, one team's the worst team that's ever played and the other team's the greatest team since St. George of the 60s. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so, you know, my point would be I thought the Eels' defence in certain stages of that game was very, very good. I've been critical, as you know, over, over a period of time around some of our edge defence and some of our intensity at times. But um, we had some very good stages of defence. We had some really good goal-line defence at various stages of that first 60 minutes and even after that. And there's a couple of key things. You know, the tackles were pretty even. You know, each team did about 350 tackles. The missed tackles, Penrith missed 30, we missed 35. So we're pretty even there. Uh, line breaks... They had three-line breaks to two. So, you know, it wasn't like they were opening us up at will. They were not. The stats support that. And, the and, you know, the eyeball test supports that too. When I was watching the game, I thought, well, we're reasonably cup comfortable. We're under a lot of pressure. But it's not like some games in prior years, yes. particularly those South games where you, th- where you were just holding your breath. Yeah. And
1: chewing chewing your nails, <laughs> knowing that it was coming. Yeah,
2: That was not the case in this game. Um, so that was—I thought the defence was a real positive to keep them. They were in the mood too, Penrith. They were ruthless to keep them to four tries, and, and two of them were from kicks. And to have the line breaks at three to three to two was was uh, was positive. I thought I thought Mitchell Moses for sixty minutes was elite. He really stepped up. People have been doubting whether he steps up in big games. I think he's hopefully killed that off. And in two areas, I thought his kicking was particularly the first twenty minutes it was a masterclass from Moses and. In addition, his defence out on the edge against Kickow. Now I know that was ended up being how he got put out of the game with a courageous attempted tackle on Kickow. But I thought his defence, uh, his commitment to getting his body in front, was terrific. So Moses's kicking and defence was certainly a positive. And looks certain of our players, I thought played very well. I thought Reed Marney had a terrific game. Not just his the number of tackles, but the quality of his tackling. I thought. His service from dummy half was very good. He he, he engineered our first try with the face ball to Cthusi. Um, I thought Madison was terrific again off the bench. And I watched the game again uh, a couple of days ago, and uh, I thought RCG and Paulo, under intense pressure from that ruthless defensive line, I thought they tried really hard. I thought they really tried to win that battle in the middle. and um, So I thought they were good, but... uh, you know, some of the others, we just couldn't get some of the other players into the game. Some of the stats around Gutherson, Sebo, Lane, um, that was indicative of that. Hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the big silver lining for me was seeing Reed starting to get back to his best. He ran the ball nicely a couple of times. Like you said, he engineered that Oregon-Kafusi try. So, that's a, if, if he can keep that form into the upcoming game against the Raiders alongside, you know, Dylan Brown and Quinton Gutherson getting back to their best, that would bode well for the Parramatta Eels.
2: Absolutely,
1: mm, but yeah, like like you said, Bernie. Not all doom and gloom. You have to pay your due respects to the Penrith Panthers. They're the reigning premiers, and they're going to be a very, very legitimate case for going back to back here. Uh, and the Eels weren't that far off. And when you factor in the Mitchell Moses concussion alongside the uh, Will Penessini and Sean Lane HIAs, which were disruptive to the Parramatta formation throughout the course of that game, uh, you know they they were in it. And then you, you know, absolutely. And you know, yeah. obviously, we we didn't mention it, but uh, Wanga uh, had a career horror night there and you, you'll be better than that in the next game but
2: he'll be, he'll be better than that and you know i don't you know i i, I just imagine trying to catch those
1: bonds and I, <laughs> yeah I think,
2: I think nine out of ten wingers are going to yeah. struggle with yeah. so i don't you know clearly we need to be better in that area but i mean i, I think Warren will come back and play a good game but you got to realize you're playing penrith on yes. the road big semi-final game they're they're on the verge of you know, they're thinking they can go back-to-back and and, and potentially making three grand finals in a row. They're one of the better teams of of the modern NRL era over the last 25 years. So, you know, people, I think, you know, when they analyse it, it's it's always really bad or really good. Sometimes there is that area in the middle. And, you know, we're we're looking at one of the very good teams of the last 25 years here with the Panthers.
1: with a a playmaker playing with his hair on absolute fire, Nathan Cleary clearly spent his uh, four or five weeks off Uh, Starting up on everything about Parramatta and and looking for every little micro weakness to exploit and did that fantastically, and then the the other reality is is that I think we spoke about this 60s is that whether we won or lost out of this game, the most likely outcome was you'd have to play Penrith four times this year, uh, ignoring the trials to beat to win the premiership. You know, if Penrith went down to the other side of the bracket in the loser side of the draw, they would probably win through the Cowboys and win through uh, the Canberra Raiders to the grand final. So one way or the other, you are probably playing Penrith again in the big dance, which means Parramatta need to take care of business moving forwards. But speaking of those other results, boys, I think it's fair to say that the Parramatta-Penrith result went the way the majority of tipsers and experts would have said in the lead-up to kickoff. but it also ignited one of the most, I'll say, insane, unpredictable and drama-laden weeks of uh, finals football, in particular week one of finals football that we've ever seen. Uh, our game was followed up by... Uh, a big big grudge match between the Canberra Raiders and the Melbourne Storm, which will leave to last. But then there was the shootout in the Shire between the Cowboys and the Sharks, which went through not only extra time, but into Golden Point, finished by a two-point field goal. And then on Sunday, it was an ancestral grudge match between the uh, the Raiders, the Rabbitohs and the Roosters. Let's start with the Sharks and the Cowboys, the two, uh, not, not necessarily rookie coaches in the case of Todd Payton, but the two youngest tenured coaches in the finals. What did you make of that one, Bernie? Because that was a real, a real shootout.
2: Yeah, no, I enjoyed the game. I, I really did enjoy the game. And again, I'll make the point. It was a pity you could only have eleven and a half thousand people down there at Shark Park. That game deserved thirty to forty thousand people. And you know, I'm, I'm still a believer. It should have been played at at Allian Stadium. But. Uh, beside that, I think it was a very entertaining game. Both these teams are very well coached. When I watch these teams play, I see they have a plan in their attack and their defence. Sometimes I watch, I get the impression they don't know what they're doing. That's not the case with the Sharks and the Cowboys, and that's a testament to their coaches. Craig Fitzgibbon at the Sharks and Todd Payton at the Cowboys. I really enjoy watching these teams play. They have very good attacking formations, both these teams, very good ball movement. They put a lot of pressure um, on the opposition defence because of that ability to have good formations and and good ball movement. Um, This game was not as physically intense, I didn't think, as some of the other games due to the fact that these teams like to move the ball around. They're dangerous teams, these, and they're dangerous for any other team because these teams have points in them. Whenever you have a team that has points in them, they just need to fire up defensively and you know you're you're in for a long afternoon or a long evening playing them. Um, The kicking games of these two teams – Um, is probably a bit of a weakness for them, like Chad Townsend for the Cowboys, Nico Hines for Cronulla. They don't have big boots. Mm -hmm. My theory on kicking, it's vitally important. I think the ability to kick long, the ability to kick high and long, such as Cleary and Moses, is a distinct advantage. Mm -hmm. Neither of these players have that ability. Um, It impacts long kicking. It impacts big bombs. Having said all that, this was a terrific game Um, and – you know, At the end of the day, Holmes really stood up with that with that field goal. And look, either team could have won this game. although oh, it was a really entertaining game. And the Sharks live on, and they'll be dangerous this week for Souths.
1: Valentine Holmes is such a, a fascinating sort of sub-storyline to the Cowboys, isn't he? Because he comes back from the NFL on that heavy, like, big contract, doesn't shake out as the fullback in his return to Rugby League, but he perseveres and, and really carves out a specialist role in the centres now, he, he is incredible as a centre-free quarter and he brings such a unique bonus to the Cowboys in his ability to kick field goals and and be a sharpshooter in that regard.
2: Well, he, he's now, in my opinion, this year, consistently over this year, he is clearly the best left centre in the game. I think he'll be the left centre in the World Cup and potentially Latrell Mitchell in the, on the, in the right centre spot for Australia. He's had a, a, norm, a phenomenal season. He's very, very gifted. He, he marries his athletic abilities. with He's just got wonderful football instincts, uh, Valentine Holmes. Mm-hmm. He really is a special player. I think he's going to, the next four or five years, he's going to be a, continue to be a superstar. And the cherry on top of the Cowboys, he may be the best goal kicker in the league. I don't think anyone strikes the ball.
1: Yeah, uh, between off the, the tee and, and the drop kicks, he is. He probably
2: strikes the ball as well. Yeah. But um, you know, the, for consistency of strike, in range of goal kicking, um, you know, Valentine Holmes, that's an enormous string to his bow.
1: Yeah, and game on the line with the field goals, he might be the best exponent in the NRL up there with uh, Adam Reynolds and maybe Nathan Cleary.
2: Absolutely, and he was the one I thought that would take it. I knew the field goal probably wouldn't be from Townsend unless it was like 20 metres. Yeah, because
1: he yeah, yeah, pot shot range. So
2: I was, was interested to see in that when they went to a whether Holmes would be the man. And he he nailed it because, you know, he's a gun. He's a big-time player. Yeah. Now, Bernie, the uh, the roosters and the rabbitos clash
0: on the Sunday was. There was certainly something else. It's in the modern era. Just the drama around it, the narrative in the lead up, the drama throughout the game, uh, all those high shots in the tackles. Now, I mean, you might be like me. I I, I can go back to the games in the in the seventies and eighties uh, when you'd see. The, some of the high shots and the the players would get up and and look at the opposition and just go I got your number um and there wasn't the uh you know players being sent off to the bin and what have you but in this day and age um you know and especially around the head bin and and that sort of thing it's it was unique for the number of incidents that seemed to happen in 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 one game or that had attention uh, drawn to it how did, how did you see the game mate well, I was actually out at
2: the game, so I saw it really well. So, <laughs> uh, it was wild. It was chaotic. Um, you know, I think there's a couple of points to be made. I think, and and fortunately, Trent Robinson, who's a, a terrific coach and a very intelligent person, yeah. he he underlined this in his post-match presser. He said it's not the type of game that we want to see every week in rugby league. You know, the the lack of discipline. Um, you know, and I, uh, you know, people were criticising the referee. I think the referee was the was the one guy that actually kept his head on the field. Um, I I thought, you know, probably out of the seven sin bins, probably, you know, five were valid. You could probably argue over the two. But at the end of the day, that wasn't the referee's fault. That wasn't the bunker's fault. That was the player's fault. The players were showing a lack of discipline. Um, And, you know, there's a whole other issue around bunker involvement in on-field foul play issues. That's a longer discussion that we won't get into now. But at the end of the day, under the current rules, um, you know, the players were, showed a distinct lack of discipline. I think um, South settled into their football amidst all this chaos, better than the Roosters. I think Walker and Mitchell iced their opportunities. The South Fords they just rumbled forward and, um, so they, I thought South were terrific, and and with with Cook back, he was a huge in, and Campbell Graham was a huge in. Both those guys did not play the week before. The Roosters' physical play over the last six weeks, I think it took its toll. Um, layer on top of that, Tedesco got a HIA. The world's best player didn't come back. Uh, Tupu went off at halftime. In addition, you know they had guys like Collins, Tupanua, Joey Manu, Billy Smith. They're all on the sidelines as well they were very gutsy but at the end of the day they ran out of troops and with all due respect they showed a lack of discipline you know warrior hargroves and radley who i think are phenomenal players i really admire both of them but at the end of the day collectively there was a lack of discipline and i think they just ran out of juice a bit as well souths were a little fresher and they're really good players walker mitchell cook they were able to just execute sufficiently enough to get enough points and take the win. So look it was a it was a crazy game. You're sort of shaking your head and after the game get oh, yeah. Did I just see all that? But we did. But it's not the type of game we want to see going forward. Um you know that it's not you know, it's not the seventies and eighties eighties that I grew up watching. And quite frankly we can't have it be that way because we have to have a you know, society evolves, our game has to evolve. We need to protect players. If we don't protect players' heads we're not going to have a game in 30 years' time. So, you know, we just have to get that appropriate balance between protecting the players and making sure that we don't take the toughness. You you know, people say, what do you want the game to look like? Well, I want the game to look like defensively Justin Olam from Melbourne. He doesn't hit people around the head. He drives yeah, into the...
1: Absolutely, murders legally illegally.
2: And, you know, you get other players that are throwing their arms around a player's head. It's just this poor technique. So the game I want to see is, uh, you know, defensively players like Justin Ollum, not players that are throwing their arms around and hitting blokes in the head.
1: And I'm glad you raised the officiating point, Bernie, because I am the first to absolutely pile on Ashley Coin and and what I feel are poor games he calls. But in the context of what happened on the field on Sunday, it is hard to imagine a ref doing a better job trying to control such an uncontrollable match. So he wasn't afraid to go to the sim bin. He, He, you know, treated the players respectfully as long as they played respectfully. And they, they didn't, so he gave them to them what they deserved. Uh, and outside of that, what a what an insane game from the context of scoring where the team with a player disadvantage, I think, scored five of the eight tries combined between the two teams. The well, one...
2: that's the thing. When you're short on players, the greatest asset you can have is the ball.
1: Yes, and we saw both so teams what... control the ball when they didn't have the players on the field. It's crazy.
2: Ironically, the teams that had the the, the personnel advantage didn't have the ball, mm. so that, that, that advantage was negated very quickly.
1: Yeah, so, and I, I mean... like, and, like and can I,
0: John, can I just jump in yeah, there as course. well about, about Ashley Klein? Because, you know, uh, I'm not Ashley Klein's greatest fan either. And, you know, I always have a shiver that runs down my spine when I see that he's appointed to any of our games. But Spoiler. I'm going to give a tick of approval to yeah. his composure as well because, uh, in uh, and I know people pointed to how many sin bins he, he, he called during the game as losing control of it. but. In watching it again, and I was just watching his body language and the way that he spoke, and there wasn't any emotion, there wasn't any frustration in what he was doing. the The decisions were uh, sent out very clearly. The instructions were clear.
2: Um, yeah, I, I I couldn't fault him in that regard. Mm. Yeah. Could you imagine if he'd have uh, sent a player off, for example? You can make a case that Burgess's shot after review on the video was. It was it was pretty. I've seen players sent off for
1: yeah, that. Or Tano Milne with two high shots that resulted in Simmons. He could have been uh, sent for the second one, arguably.
2: He could have been there. What would have if if Klein sends a player off, then he becomes he people then suddenly accuse him of overreacting mm. instead of un- underreacting. So you know he was in a no win situation, and like I said, just assessing his performance, I, I thought he was making an attempt to be the adult in the room.
1: And we finish off our review of the Week 1 Finals with the most relevant game for the Parramatta Eagles, given that we would play the victor out of this contest on Saturday, that being the Raiders and the Melbourne Storm. Raiders were probably the underdogs, I'd say, in terms of the tipsters, even though they had the ascendancy over the Storm heading into this game. And lo and behold, they come out of it the victors. And dare I say, Bernie, they play a little bit like Parramatta in the way they take on Melbourne.
2: Cool. Yeah, well, well, exactly, and I think we talked about this last week. I think I made the point. They are the team that most resembles Parramatta, just specifically on this game against the Storm. Um, you know, there's no at this time of year, there's no there's no surprises. Every coach knows how every team's going to play. Mm-hmm. It's just a case of who get their game on, and that's usually a case of your mentality, your aggression, who's winning the collisions. Um, you know, the Storm to me. Three or four weeks, five weeks out, they were looking older. They were looking tighter. They've got four players, four forwards leaving the club. Three of them are on the back nine of their careers. Um, they're uh, they're not the intimidating presence that they used to be. Opponents now believe, believe that they can beat them. Uh, Pappenhausen wasn't playing. I don't think there's any – you take Pappenhausen, who yeah. over the first six weeks was the best player in the NRL, mm-hmm. you take him out of that squad, it's not only what he does, it's the confidence he brings to the rest of the players and their spine. So I think, you know, they were ripe for the picking, as we talked about last week, um, even though I tipped the storm with Hughes. Canberra um, were very good. Papali and Tapani were, were powerful. They're a big, strong athletic team, the Raiders. They, they, they've got White and Tomoko, Kotrick, Ripener, Savage. They're fast. Um, they're big. Um, we'll talk a bit more about where we have that what that means to the next game against the Eels, but they played to their template. And at the end of the day, Tarpany and Papa Lee were the foundation. Uh, White had a very strong game. He's the pulse, he's sort of the heartbeat of that team. So yeah, very, very good win by the Raiders. And momentum is such a
0: powerful force, Bernie. How much self belief would be in the Raiders camp right now?
2: Oh, terrific. Their belief's very high and uh Look, mentally, they're playing with house money because their expectations externally and maybe internally uh, for most of the season haven't been that high. No one's no one's been saying at any point during the year that the Raiders are a legitimate chance to win the comp. Now, they've snuck up on this competition and good luck to them. You know, Ricky's prepared them well. Ricky loves this us against them. He, he loves he,
1: he does, yeah. He embraces it 100 percent
2: Nobody expects us to win. He loves saying, Oh, the draw usually disadvantages my raiders. So all, all this is that Ricky's very good at galvanizing the group. So look, mentally, their belief's are very high at the moment. And uh, you know, they're a dangerous opponent because they're big, they're tough, um, they try and bully their opponents with that with that power game in there they got a bit of footy in them as well. So, yeah, they're a, they're a dangerous opponent whose belief would be very high, and they they would love coming up to uh, Combank as the underdog this Friday night.
1: And I think you might have given us a sneak peek about the answer for this, but Ricky Stewart as a coach, he doesn't always get his team to the finals, but when he does, he has an outstanding win-loss record there. He's one of the most winningest coaches in terms of the postseason. Why is that?
2: Well, just put a bit of perspective around that. Ricky's coached for 18 seasons, not counting this year. No, yeah, not counting this year. He's made the playoffs seven times. So he's only gone to the playoffs 39%. But when he does go, he can win some games. But even within that, uh, to put a bit more context around that, his first three years of coaching at the Roosters, 2002, thousand and two, three, and four, and I was CEO at the Roosters for the first two, um, his record there was eight out of ten. He had an 80% record at the Roosters. At the Sharks, they made the playoffs in 2008. They won one playoff game out of two, so that was 50%. And at the Raiders, um, in his eight seasons there, they've only made the playoffs three times up to this and out of the eight years. And in those games, they've won six of 11 for 55%. So there's a little bit of a distortion there because of the 80% win record he had at the Roosters in the first three years when you do a bit of a deep dive on this. So if you take out the Roosters... His record's 54%, not 68%. So there is a bit of a perspective around that. Having said all that, um, he's very good in, in in leading up to big games, in galvanising his team to achieve a task and a win in a big game that's coming up. So the, st- the stats are a little misleading, and I don't think, you know, typically of some of the journalists, they they don't do a lot of research. Um and when you analyse it, it, a lot of it's off the back of those first three years at the Roosters. Since then, he's about 54%. Having said that, if you win more than you lose in playoffs, it's still a good effort because in playoffs, you're always playing the best teams. You're not playing the yeah. duck teams.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. So, look, yeah. I think the record still stands as a, as a solid record in playoff football. And I know from Ricky that he's a very good coach, by the way. So... And I know he's very good in those big game situations. So, you know, he's going to have the Raiders. They're going to be tearing a pain off the walls when they play this Friday night.
0: Now, we've we've touched on this because on the surface, Parra and Canberra play that reasonably similar brand of football. What do you see as the similarities and, importantly, the points of difference between the teams, Bernie? Yeah,
2: the, the, look, they're powerful. They're aggressive. They're unpredictable. They, Papa Lee and Tarpany, have the capability for offloads, which means they've got the second phase attack. They've got good, big athletes. They, I would argue they have a more explosive back five than Parramatta does, mm-hmm. athletically. You know, Savage is jet quick. Rapiner and Kotrick are big, strong wingers. Um, you know, Tomoko is, is, well, we,
1: is… We also did the monster last week.
2: We already did the monster. He's and Chris is a very strong young athlete on the other side, and of course, so their their back five is very powerful. They're not a precise attacking team. They don't run shapes and formations, in my opinion, as well as teams like Storm, Roosters, Cowboys, Cronulla, that who are much more precise on getting to a point on the field and then executing a play with very good formations. So, again, um. The coaches are very – the other interesting thing here to me is the coaches, they're very similar. They're very competitive. They're extremely hard workers, having worked with both of them, myself. Um, so And they're ruthless competitors, both of them. So, you know, Canberra are going to be very, very difficult to beat if they dominate possession. Similar to the Eels, if the Eels get 55%, they're hard to beat. And, and Canberra are similar. Now, the differences. One key difference is the kicking. Moses is simply better than Fogarty. There's no comparison. Um, I know Whiten does a bit of left foot foot kicking down the left-hand side of the field for Canberra. But the all-round kicking game of Mitchell Moses, supported by Dylan Brown, period. Um, Fogarty, since he came back, has been... They've won nine of 13, I think. uh, His kicking's nowhere near as good. Uh, He's got the odd mistake in him too, Fogarty. Um, So his kicking's not as accurate as Mitchell. so they need to really pressure him. Um, The other difference... It, it, well, it's not necessarily a different, but a valid comparison is, is Jack White and Dylan Brown. They're, they're, they're the X factors for their teams, aren't they? Those two players, mm-hmm. the number six. Whiten's world class. He's ruthless. He's really the pulse of that Canberra team. He will impose himself on the contest. And there's no question Friday night, he, Jack Whiten's not going to die wandering. He's going to bust his butt to make it happen. He's not going to wait for the game to come to him. And this is where Dylan needs to – Dylan can Dylan can float in and out of games. He's a very laid-back character, terrific player, love him as a player. But Dylan needs to impose himself on the game. He wasn't able to the other night, and it really showed in the, the lack of strike that we had. So um, the other similarities, of course, is Tarpany and Papa Lee up against Paulo and Campbell-Giller. Um, that's going to be a terrific battle. And, and Hudson Young, he's a bit of an X-factor as well. Yes. He's got amazing football instincts. He just seems to turn up in the right place at the right time. A cheeky so, little rubber kick too. Yes. I think I think Marnie is a little slight point of difference. I think his service, passing and experience is probably superior to Wolford and that dummy half is critical because they handle the ball the most. Um, so, look, some real similarities how they play the game philosophically. Um, few little differences. Um, the big – the. The real interesting thing for me is, I think both teams are going to try and impose their will physically on the other team. It's going to be terrific, but I think Whiten and White versus Dylan Brown is going to be critical in the result. So, it
0: think, was, uh, Bernie. There was an interesting discussion on NRL three hundred and sixty, uh, and it's this is I wanted to draw in your thoughts on Dylan Brown with this because. Um, um, Brad Arthur and the and the Parramatta roster, and there was a bit of a take going on there that Brad Arthur is a potential premiership winning coach, but the Parramatta roster is not necessarily a premiership winning roster, uh, because they and specifically because they don't have that top of the tree elite player like say the Roosters have with Tedesco or Manly has with Trebojevic or uh, Penrith have with Cleary. And my take on that is that that should be Dylan Brown there if he didn't float in and out of the games, as you uh, just uh, spoke about then. You know, if, if his headspace was one where he was just in the moment, in the game all the time, that he could be that player. Is that a reasonable take
2: on Dylan? I think that's a. I think that is a part of a good take in the sense that what I would say is if you watch Cody Walker play for South, particularly when when the game's on the line, he floats from the right to the left. He he involves himself in the game. Um, Dylan parks himself on the left. Very rarely an attack moves over to the right. We don't very often see Dylan and Mitchell pairing up on the right side of the field. It's usually just left to Mitchell. I don't like that. I like when they play together and they float and play sides on both sides of the field because I like to see the ball. I like to see Arnie to our, both our halves playing together. I like three of our spine with Gutherson out the back. I think that gives you the most uh, option and capability to use your spine or skill players when you actually have the ball in good ball set. So yeah, that's part of it. Look, there is part of it. If you look at, you know, with all due respect, our back five um, is good, but, you know, as you pointed, out, we don't, you know, there's not a Trebojevic, there's not a, you know, Joey Manu, James Tedesco, but I still think the players are, are good enough. And I think if – particularly, I think Moses and Brown are the key for us. So adding on to your point, Craig, Dylan Brown is a key. Clearly he is, and Mitchell is as well. So if Mitchell and Dylan play to their capabilities, I think they are an X factor.
1: Well, speaking of Mitchell Moses, he's been in the headlines – due to the concussion he sustained against the Penrith Panthers, and now he's in concussion protocols, having apparently cleared the independent specialist right now. Should there be any concerns about how he played this week? Are there any concerns about Parramatta's handling of the Mitchell Moses concussion? I, like I said, I know the media's made a, a big bone about player welfare when it comes to these concussions, but I, I sort of think that the Parramatta Eels, alongside the Sydney Roosters, have been one of the two leading franchises when it comes to taking concussions as serious as they should be taken.
2: Yeah, no, look, i look externally I wouldn't think there's any need to be concerned I know the people within the organization at the yields particularly in the foot department Mark O'Neill and Brad Arthur and the medical staff um, dr. Louie uh, I have no question no problems that they're you know extremely trustworthy and ethical and they. I would trust the medical process within the club and also they have to get an independent doctor I understand as well um, so I don't think and I think for Mitchell, Unlike some other players in the league, he doesn't have a history of concussion, for mm-hmm. one. Um, so, and number two is, you know, from all, you know, hearing him interviewed and whatever, and, and you just have to trust the medical process. But yeah, no, I, I have no with Mitchell. Um, we just need to make sure he gets plenty of touches and uh, plays well. Now, we've already touched on this, but what
0: needs to happen both from uh, individual player perspectives and also from the
2: team as a whole this week
0: for Parramatta to get the win?
2: We don't need to overcomplicate it tactically. We need to, We need to, and you can't change dramatically how we play the game at this stage of the year. As I said before, there's no team left in the comp that every coach in the league doesn't know what they're going to try to do. We know what the, every team's going to try to do. So the simple things are the foundation and that comes back to their, you know, their mentality, their attitude. i I would like to see us be really aggressive physically. The Raiders will attempt to bully us. They're a big team. They're they're like us. We like to bully opposition players and nothing wrong with that in a legal sense. Um, but then we are got to take our opportunities. We've got, to, we've got to take those big moments. That comes back to Mitchell and Dylan and uh, potentially Guthrie. Um We need to get our game on. Last week, as I said, we didn't get our attacking formations on. We didn't get our back rowers, Lane and Puppalee, in the game. Um We need – and therefore, if you don't get your back rowers in the game, you're not getting Gutho out the back into the game as well, uh, out the back of shape. So we need to get our back rowers and Gutho into the game. And we can't wait to settle into a rhythm. We can't go out and just, you know, go through our plays, get to our kick. We need to really aggressively attack this game and go and get it because I'll guarantee you the Raiders are going to do that. We need to kick pressure Fogarty. He's not an elite kicker, in my opinion. So – With a bit of pressure on Fogarty, you could even, you know, you may get a good result out of one of his kicks. So Mm -hmm. I'm not saying he can't kick well periodically. He can, but, you know, no one's putting him in the elite class of kickers in the NRL, like general play kickers. The other interesting thing for the Eels is they haven't lost a game, two games in a row all year. Um, We have a legitimate bounce-back factor within the team. I think Combank coming home is going to be a big asset for us. All these things make a difference. So... Look, I think we just need to get our basic game on, but there's got to be a real concentration that when we get up into the other team's half that we get our formations on and we get our back rowers laying Papa Lee with Gutherson out the back. We get those formations on and that will enhance our try-scoring ability. And and also, I I, I was saying this to uh,
0: John the other day. I think this is the first time that I can remember Parramatta being in a recent finals match where there are no factors outside of their control that are are coming into this. And what I mean by that is we've got as close to our best uh, team that we can assemble out there on the field, certainly at least the team that BA would want to select. We're playing at home. Um, No one appears, I mean, apart from Mitch Moses with the concussion, no one's under a major injury cloud the ball is basically in our own court completely for a finals match in the first time that I can
2: remember. No, that's fair comment. And, uh, we just, we, we need to, we need to take that. We need to take that belief and, and actually execute, but it's, it's going to come down to, you know, all those foundational things that I just talked about that, they, that the team needs to get on, but you're right. You know, the, this this is this game is there for Parramatta to, to win. We're playing a quality opponent. But, I mean, these are the opportunities you've got to take.
1: And when all is said and done, Bernie, after 80 minutes or perhaps more with extra time and Golden Point on Friday night, how do you see this one playing out? Did the Parramatta Eels get that King Kong-sized gorilla off their back? Did they book a date with the North Queensland Cowboys in Townsville?
2: Well, I certainly hope so, but I genuinely think they can. I think they can bounce back. It's not going to be easy. This is going to be a real rip-and-tear game. You've got two terrific forward packs. You could make a case um, collectively that these two forward packs are as good as any forward packs in the league, along with Penrith. Um, So, yeah, it's going to be a a bash-up in the middle, but then we have to take our opportunities and get our our edge-attacking game on so that we can, you know, we need to score points. One try that we got last week, that's not going to do it this week either. So... But I do think they can do it. So, yeah, I think the Eels can win a close one.
1: Well, Bernie, as always, thank you for coming on. And hopefully this isn't your last call <laughs> of the season. Parramatta Eels can pers- uh, prospectively play a further two more games after this week if they keep winning. But just getting past the Canberra this week would be a massive milestone for the boys and entering a brave new World of Finals football for the squad under Brad Arthur.
2: Yeah, it'd be terrific for the club. You know, the club's been building nicely over the last, you know, five years or so, Um you know the team the club is very stable uh, the footy program stable this team is 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 you know they've been together a while now and there's there's a real there's a real benefit of having a team a core group of players over a time but at the end of the day you got to take you take got to take advantage of the opportunity so this is a real opportunity at home go through to that grand final qualifying game or preliminary final as they now call it and uh, you know let's let's hope the Eels can get it done Yes, thanks, sir.
1: thanks, Bernie, and hopefully we'll catch you on the next or the next preview podcast. Thanks, boys. All right, 60s, so let's get quickly into our two previews of the NRL and NRLW games coming up. Obviously, Bernie's walked us through wonderfully what the Eagles need to do for the Canberra Raiders clash on Friday night. So let's turn our eyes there first, look at the Canberra Raiders list. Starting at fullback, you've got Xavier Savage on the wings, Nick Kotrich and Jordan Ruppiner, who always has a big game against us, it feels like. In the centres, you've got Matthew Tomoko and Sebastian Chris. Harv's pairing is Jack White and Jamal Fogarty. Front row, Josh Papali'i, Zach Wolford, Joseph Tapanay. The two bookends there, obviously in sensational touch. Hudson Young, he's in World Cup contention, being an edge back rower. He'll partner Elliot Whitehead out there with Corey and naira Moving to lock forward, giving them a more mobile and agile option at lock. On the bench, Tom Starling's the dummy half. The three forwards are Emre Goula, Corey Horsburgh and Ryan Sutton. Extended roster, Albert Hobawati. Atta, Mariota, Matt Froy Peter Holler and Sean's nickel clock very very well put together team when you look at it on a paper like that 60s very similar to the Reels, dynamic forward pack some strike in the back line a very good half and Jack whiten I mean Bernie walked us through all the X factors all the threats that they possess across the park anything there that catches your eye that we might have not uh, we might have missed or not spoken about
0: now look I think maybe they've they've got um, a, a bit of an edge in in the uh, on the bench. I think that's probably an area where um, you know, we, we maybe don't quite match them, but then I think we come up positively on uh, in our halves. Uh, I think there's uh, and you know maybe maybe that's where this game is going to be won in the halves and, and that little bit of inexperience because uh, it is such a, a major talent of the future but is he quite there yet Mm. at fullback? So um, I think they've got some errors in them, the Raiders. Then again, I look at our back line and, and, you know, we've we've obviously got some errors in ours. So again, it's like like these parallels through it. Both packs have got that ability to um, send each team into uh, second phase play, generate that second phase play. They can also play uh, the power game through the middle. You've got both sets of backs that are capable of their moments of brilliance, but have got the errors in them as well. It's, yeah, it's just a, an even match around there. And as I said, I think the Eels have got the edge in the halves. I think the Raiders have maybe got the edge um, in on the bench. And, uh, yeah, just, look, I'm there there is no way on earth that I'm thinking that this is going to be an easy task. No, I think know. it's one of those games where... um the opposition is beatable, but the opposition can also turn it on.
1: And for, and the, for the Eels, Brad has named an unchanged team. No surprises there. It is true to his character, true to his convictions. And, you know, one way or another, it's going to work out or not work out because it's both his greatest strength and can be a weakness too. But looking at the team, 60s, Quentin Guffson, captain and fullback, or co-captain and fullback, Mike Acevo, Wonga Blake on the wings, obviously making a big statement by picking Wonga Blake after what happened against Penrith, Wool any Tom Opachic Centers, Harves, Dill Brown, Mitchell Moses, Front Row, Reg, Reagan Campbell Gillard, Reed Marney, Junior Barlaw, back row, Sean Lane, Zai Papali'i, Ryan Madison. But we do expect Ryan Madison to swap with Mr. Nia who's in the number 17 jersey, which means Madison will be joined on the bench by Makahesi Makatoa, Jake Arfa, Oregon Cafusi, Extend the Roster, Nathan Brown, Bailey Simonson, Bryce Cartwright, Officer Ogden, and Kai Rodwell. Most notably, no Sean Russell there, which meant if he was going to replace Wonga Blake, it would have been Bowie Simonson or Bust. Was Wonga Blake the right call of their
0: 60s? I think it comes down to what I was saying in our instant reaction and in our news podcast, where I believe that there was an onus on Clint Gutherson to get in there with some of those kicks that went up in the air, Uh, those, those bombs that were just causing Wonga such terror. I think that, first one that he dropped was easily as much Gutho's to take as it was yes. to uh, Blake. Now, it may well have been, we can't hear it, it may well have been um, Blake that called out that it was his, and Gutho left it for him there, but when you when you looked at it again, you could see that um, Gutho was literally there. Yeah, within a metre uh, of it. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, if he had a pushed in and called out that it was his, then uh, maybe it, because he took the ball quite well any time he was required to on the night, um, then maybe we wouldn't have had uh, Wonga spiral into a, a number of drops. I mean, I think a lot of pundits are saying, look, it's easy to understand why he dropped the ball, looking at how those how the ball was floating and spiralling through the air. But I, you're not going to make a change at this stage. And... I also said in reply to someone today on TCC, if it was a case of um, Bailey Simonson not being injured, there probably wouldn't have been the change with him on. Like, he probably would have still been playing on the wing. It's, as you mentioned before, the thing about BA is he he tends to pick and stick. Now, it's not, that's often misconstrued as he has favourites. It's simply that if he feels players are doing the job and they are the, and he doesn't want to change it he doesn't change it and for a while a lot of people were complaining about Bailey Simonson um, through the season and uh, and some of the issues he was having in particular games but BA was sticking with him uh, he was if Sean Russell hadn't got injured with that in the ribs would he have would he have been in the on the wing for the entirety of the season? You know, it's, I think it's, you'd spoke about uh, BA's uh, strength with loyalty can also be his weakness. Well, as I said, I think were it not for injury, maybe there would have been a different lineup because he would have stuck with whoever was there. So, um, yeah, he does have faith in players. If he thinks they've deserved a shot in first grade and deserve their spot in the team, he gives them every opportunity to retain their spot.
1: Yes, and, and like like we said, can be double edged sword, but his ability to get the best out of what have been considered journeyman players or or even diamonds are off comes largely down to the faith and conviction that he has in these men. So And hopefully. can I
0: just add in there too? We talked about that bounce back factor. That bounce back factor probably wouldn't happen if he wasn't giving faith in the in those players. Because Absolutely. it's yeah. it's it's basically he's saying to those players each and every time you, you know, you go out, you get the job done next time, and they've gone out and got the job after after bad losses. So, and, and then you think, after the bad loss, he could have easily cut a swathe through the team, dropped this person, that person, whatever, in reaction. And this is, remember, it's that word, in reaction to a loss. But he never panicked. He never made those reactionary changes. And the team bounced back every time to the point where there wasn't ever consecutive losses through uh, you know, through the season. That gave that 67% win rate for the year. Now, a lot of the questions are, are coming around the bench. Now, I've, I've just said that I think maybe the Raiders have an edge on the bench because if you look at their bench players, they've got some strike there in their bench players. It's simply because of that. Now, there's been a lot of criticism as we've... Uh, we would have expected there was a lot of criticism around Jake. It's been, it's come up on 360. You've had uh, Brent Reed who uh, was defending BA's decision to have a halfback on the bench, and others who are criticising BA for having players that he might not use on the bench. And I brought, brought it up in the news episode as well. He is not the only coach that's going down this path. There tends to be trends that start to happen in coaching. And a trend that's happening at the moment is teams carrying a back on the bench well, for a just like, like we said with Spiro scenario. yesterday.
1: Literally last weekend, the Sharks, the Rabbitohs, the Eels all played ah. games of fifteen or sixteen players, ostensibly.
0: Well, and the f- Cowboys.
1: Sorry, the, the had, Cowboys they, too. Sorry, yeah,
0: yeah. The Cowboys have had the hammer on the bench
1: the entire, for most
0: of the year, almost the entire year, yeah. Yeah, and, and there's there's games like there was. Now, in that 93-minute match, the Hammer played like four minutes.
1: And then, four minutes in a 93-minute um, match. Nien, the other player, played seven, I think. So they played with yeah, 15. Yeah,
0: Nien played seven minutes. So he's gone in a 93-minute match with 15 players. They've won the game. Now, my take on all of this is assess what happens across the season with that because B.A.'s used the bench in a way which I wouldn't have expected. He's used the bench in a way which I wouldn't have done. But I'm not an NRL coach. I'm not a coach at any level. And I think a lot of the pundits and a lot of the sporters are basically, their thought is, hey, we shouldn't be doing this. I think what it is, it's as much as this is unexpected. And if you think, well, that hasn't differed too much for the entirety of the season. And players have floated in and out of that Uh, say that 17th position, it mightn't be wearing jersey 17, but that position where there's minimal minutes or no minutes at all and and he's rotated that with with them getting time back in New South Wales Cup to get their game time back up and to keep their match fitness up. So that's why we've seen that little bit of rotation of players that's occurred in that position. And on top of that,
1: the Eels also telegraphed mid-season that they were potentially looking at shoring up the bench with an acquisition like Clemmer or Tapau. So, they might have been looking for a strike, you know, player off the bench that just isn't there right now.
0: Yeah, and so I think that the take is that most people are looking at it and going, "This isn't how I'd use it," and that and that's a fair enough comment to make as a as a personal opinion. Is he wrong to do it? Will you judge that on the results? And at the moment, you've got a team that finished in the top four doing that for the entirety of the season. And you might criticise and go, "How much better could we have gone if we'd used it differently?" Well, you, you don't know. You can only judge it on what's actually transpired. Now the season isn't over. If we if we come out of this winning it, winning the game against the Raiders, do you go? Well, the the reason for the win was how we used the bench. Probably people wouldn't wouldn't um, say that that was the reason but it's got to be part of it. You know, it's the entirety of the, of the game. Um, Using, if you, if you use, people will look at that and go, well, we're using, expecting far too much of RCG and Junior Paulo with the minutes that they're playing. Um, And then you go, but do you want them playing um, as many minutes out of the quality props as you can? Or do you want them off the field? Yeah, you can, you can turn every one of those questions around. Now to Jake himself, did he have his best time out on the field that he's had in in his NRL games this year uh, and, and across the last two years? Probably not because he missed a tackle and he kicked a ball out on the full. But I think by the same token, the people who are pointing to that, and they like to throw in the knock-on as well, but I don't know that you could throw, throw they in they that knock-on mean, to the ball that, that, that was thrown, yes. dribbled along the ground behind him when he's trying to run in support. But if you're going to knock him on that, how about you give him some credit? Because the Eels only made two line breaks and one of them was off his pass to Wonga Blake for that line break. And the yeah, other the scored. other moment too, he almost scored on yeah. his own. Um so you know, I I think if you're gonna if you're gonna dig into him and have a have a have a shot at, at Jake Arthur, how about you give him a bit of acknowledgement for a couple of good moments too that he engineered that hadn't happened in the game up to that point from the players who were on there for sixty minutes? So, um, yeah, look, there's going to be a lot of controversy around around Jake because of his dad I, being the coach. I don't want to get any further into it. It's, I've probably talked more on that than I need to because of the fact that it is, by BA's own admission, a spot that he has on the bench where he is dedicating it to provide coverage for a couple of positions in case an injury happens. And guess what happened last week? We got an injury to Mitch Moses in the halves. Would we have gone any better if we had been cut, if we had have had a Hayes Paramore or a Jordan Rankin on the bench who came on and played halfback when Mitch Moses went off? I doubt that it would have transpired any differently whatsoever. So, um, you know, you got to cover, you got to have your uh, the number number three half if he's behind Mitches Mitch Moses and Dylan Brown on the bench there and um, he was needed. So it was as simple as that. And if he's if there's a game and he's not needed, BA doesn't worry about only playing uh, 16 players off the bench. And guess what? He's not the only coach that did it as we've just... who's been doing it as we've talked about. All those other teams, they've moved to that sort of structure as well. Cody Nikarima on the bench for South played like four minutes in that brutal game against against the Roosters. So... You know, both the Cowboys and the and South victorious on the weekend with coaches structuring the bench like that. So, anyway, and uh, that's probably as enough as I should be saying. <laughs> Forty, I've rambled a bit. Um, that's all good. I, well, I, you know, a, and I, I just want to say, look, I'm not saying this in in some sort of defiant uh, defence of Jake Arthur. I'm just saying, you know what? It's at the moment that bench structure is simply. It's not what most people expected to be, and it's not what I expected it to be. It doesn't mean that it's wrong. If if you've got to fourth place in the in the regular rounds, we're doing you know having that that extra well, bench it, the also, player that's hard
1: a, a spo- to oh, sorry, getting to fourth place with a roster that the media loves to consistently scrutinise for lacking superstars. Yep. So you know, do we lack superstars? or Is the coaching good or is the coaching bad and the team's better than the coach? Like it, it's one of those ones where between the media and fans, they they can't really ascertain a consistent narrative. So, like you said, it, it's become a trend across the NRL, particularly across you know top four teams or, or good teams that you know you're playing with that utility on the bench. And one way or the other, there's going to be a team in the grand final qualifier or a couple of teams in the grand final qualifier that subscribe to that philosophy at least.
0: Yes, yeah, exactly, exactly right. There will be teams. At that level, and maybe it, both teams on grand final day will be teams that approach it mm. with that philosophy. So now, um, that would a, be interesting then to hear the takes of the uh, the pundits and the fans on uh, if, if both teams in the grand final adopted that uh, philosophy.
1: So it's the, anyway, uh, we move on, mate. Year, we move on. It's the time of year where the big blinds are now massive, which means you're pretty much all in whenever you make a call. So let's put all our cards on the table, push all our chips to the middle, mate. How do you see this one playing out on Friday night?
0: You know, I think I subscribe to um, what Tim Manor had to say. We had a we were able to have a conversation with Tim at uh, the uh, community event at Parramatta Leagues Club on Tuesday, and his take on the game, and I'm sure he doesn't mind me sharing this, is that he believes the the team is well and truly going to be up for it, that it will be. It'll be tied early, and then our ascendancy, um, our superiority will be shown in the latter stages of the game and, and we'll pull away from the Raiders. And I think that's probably how it's likely to play out. I I think that we will work for that platform early in the game. I, like last week, Bernie pointed it out, and we talked about it as well, we just didn't get those key players involved in, And that line speed of of the Panthers was just relentless throughout the game. No other team has that line speed. Yeah, they go early. There's no question about that. But they've timed it to perfection where the refs just don't seem to pick it up. So kudos to them for that. Um, But I don't think we're going to see that from an opponent two weeks in a row. So I think we're going to be able to get a bit more second phase play, a bit more shape in our attack. I think we'll ask more questions. Um, mate, I, I think uh, we start to pull away from the Raiders uh, from about partway through the second half. I see the result going something like Eels 28-14.
1: Yeah, I had the Eels down for 26-18. Uh, Canberra is not going to go away. It might come down to a late try to you know seal the game for the Parramatta Eels, but... You know, you, you got to back our boys to win this one, um, and that's not to say the Raiders can't win because they are a very formidable outfit playing with plenty of confidence and plenty of momentum. Uh, so it, it is absolutely on the cards that the Eels can lose this game. But for you know the the entirety of the journey that has been twenty twenty two, for the fact they haven't lost back to back games, the fact that there are players that are departing the, the team, that doesn't mean that the premiership window is closing, but it means that this. Iteration of the eels that you know that journey that they've shared across the last two or three years, two or three years, th- this is the culmination of it. So I'm backing our boys to get the win there. I think that Dill's going to bounce back. I think he's going to either score the first try or, or set up the first try uh, down that left edge, and then um, best on field 60s. I mean, you can honestly go for any of the core players because this is a game where they all need to stand up. So they, you know, Mitchell Moses, Dylan Brown, Quentin Guffson, in there. Easy picks there. I don't know if there's a left field option here, whether it's one of the back rowers or, you know, maybe or Iacori to help set the tone in the opening stanza. But I'm not going to pick an individual best on field because this is a game where all 17 players need to stand up.
0: Look, I think that's a fair call. I'll go Gutho as my first try scorer. I like that take on it being too difficult to judge a best on field. But I'm going to suggest, however that our two halves will be highly instrumental in um, the victory so that they would feature when we're talking about who do we choose from for best on field after the game that we're you know when we're we're debating when we're um, trying to narrow it down the best on field when so many perform well I'll take your your take too many perform well so many perform well rather than too many. And it becomes difficult. But I think that our halves will be in the discussion. I think our two props will be in the discussion. And I'd like to think that our fullback will be Mm -hmm. in the discussion as well. Because Gutho was just too quiet last week. Too quiet in too many regards last week. It just was not a game where he was a presence. And I think he needs to be a presence this week. It's what had marked his previous games. And it's what needs to happen this
1: week. And of course, the Parramatta Eels in the NRL are not the only team facing a bout of sudden death at football, turning our eyes to the NRLW 60s. Some way, somehow, football is a funny, funny thing. Last season, the Eels came into the last week of football, last week, sort of two weeks of football, almost certain to play postseason football in the NRLW, only for the wheels to fall off with that Botil Vetti Welsh injury against the Roosters. This season, they enter the final week of regulation play without a win to their name, and yet, an abs- not, not a shoe in but a great chance of playing finals football. The magic number and the magic result are the Roosters beating the Gold Coast Titans, which seems to be a pretty fair outcome, given that the Roosters are going to probably run away with the minor premiership, and the Eels to beat the Broncos by at least six points. That is the magic number. Six points of points differential between the two teams, swings the four and against on two accounts, because it's obviously the head-to-head matchup against the Broncos this week, to put the Eels ahead of the Broncos and ahead of the Titans with a loss against the Roosters. And, yeah, they'll be playing finals football. If they they achieved those two outcomes this week. To do that, Dean Pay, Dean Pay, Dean Witters, sorry, has uh, made just the one change, I believe, to the team that narrowly lost to the Titans as Cassie tohi makes her debut on the week No,
0: she actually made a debut last week. Oh,
1: well, she did? There you go, Joe.
0: It was a yeah. late in, late inclusion last week, so um, yeah. So that's uh, it's, it's essentially a, it is the same.
1: A, 17. Her team was Tuesday debut. Then was uh, yes. what we got there. She actually gets to wear the number five properly this week. Uh, so it is the same team. Otherwise, which means Gal Broughton at fullback, Faye and Tui Hick on the wings, Panitani and Horn in centres. You got Quinlan and Preston in the halves. Hanisi, uh, Johnston and Malangi are the front row. P.O. Afoliaki and Taufa in the back row. You've got the two Charrington sisters, Kennedy and Ruben, yeah. leading the way in the bench with Ruby Jean Kennard and Rima Butler, who scored that fantastic try against the Titans last week. She's the last player on the interchange. Extended roster, Abby Church, Nevada George, Testanes, Brooke Anderson and Brooke Morgan Walker. Broncos, sixties and no easy beats. I know they've only got the one win to their name and they've lost two of their core players in Upton and Boyle. But you know, they've still got Chapman, Brigginshaw, uh there's young Noah Sala there too. Uh, a couple of uh, good Italian names there in Lenarduzzi and Foggovini. But yes, they're still a reasonable team across the park. They gave the Dragons an almighty scare last week until that field goal uh, kept the Eels in the hunt for the finals. But uh, this one's being played at 12.05pm at the Central Coast, uh, believe it or not, Central Coast Stadium on uh, Sunday. Triple
0: heather, part of a triple header. Yeah,
1: so not, not attached to any of the NRL games this week, just an NRLW triple header. Which I mean, I don't mind. I like seeing the NRLW stand on its own merits because I think the product is more than good enough to do so. Uh, so hopefully, lots of eyes turn to this triple header of games, in particular the Parramatta game, which I believe all three are broadcast on KO and Fox. Uh, yeah, I mean, what is there left to say, mate? They weeks two and three, they played some really solid, aggressive, you know, hungry football and fell just short. uh, you know, once. Uh, due to bunker intervention, I suppose, and once due to the quality of our opposition in the Dragons. Against the Titans, we don't know if it was a combination of factors, whether it was the the lingering after-effects of the bunker, or whether it was the lingering after-effects of just playing physical football. They didn't bring the heat in the opening stanza, opening stanza uh, considered that uh, double-digit uh, deficit on the scoreboard and had to fight the way back and just fell short. They need to bring it all together to this week. They need to get, bring the f- physicality, The finesse, the anger, the hunger, the intent, all of it. They They need to be switched on for 70 minutes. They need to beat the Broncos by six points at least. And then, you know, unbelievably, they'll be playing finals football if it it happens that way.
0: Well, mate, a couple of things there. First of all, they shouldn't be winless because at the very least, they had that um, match taken away from them against the Knights. It was, we banged on about it at the time. It was diabolical. That what the decision-making that was, uh, that was shown by the bunker in that game. Uh, touch unlucky against uh, the Dragons, you, you mentioned that. Um, and really was, you'd almost say that the performance against the Titans was probably their worst form of the year because the, the first round where they had their biggest loss of the year was a, against a, a cracking hot roosters team who uh, we went with at different stages and and were right up with them in the in the second half and it was a game which really went with uh, possession. But last week it was such an ordinary start. and to get as close as they did, it was it reflected on how costly the start was. If you play foot finals football in any competition where you've only won one game, there's an element of that where you go. This just this doesn't feel right in
1: any the, way, the, shape, uh, or what, form. Was it the pub test? It doesn't pass the pub test. I think. Yeah. No.
0: No. No. And I think that's a reflection of the fact that the NRLW only plays each other. The teams play each yeah. other once. And you it, it need, if you've the, got six teams, if you've got six teams in a competition, you need to play two rounds yeah. to to, I mean, to get a genuine give the teams and the players an opportunity to run into form and to give the the final standings at, at the end of the year like a a, a a genuineness about them and and it just feels like it just feels wrong um that that it's it's going to be possible for a team to have one win and qualify for finals football but if you end up with a competition five, where five rounds
1: spits out these quirky, outcomes. The teams get one win,
0: and the other half of, half of the teams are, are have significantly Better results. I mean, what that's just how it is. Now we know that when the competition increases to ten teams next year, that there is an element of that that disappears because if they keep a top four um, situation with ten teams, you are not going to have that happen again. And and really, that's That's the path the NRLW had to go down. They had to to increase the teams. Mind you, we don't want to see them increase much beyond there for a period of time. We want the competition standard to remain strong. Um, But, you know, in these early stages, if they could have found a way to do it, and we understand the logistical problems and the financial issues and all that sort of stuff around a brand new competition. But you would have loved to have seen them play two rounds of football and give the Give the teams a chance to Absolutely. work into work into genuine form because you know in the NRL, imagine what the the final series would be each year if the game if the if the finals happened after five rounds. Like, who would be the finalists? Oh, I
1: mean, <laughs> you'd have teams like Newcastle, well and truly in the hunt where they got you know start off two and three and zero before the wheels fell off. You yeah, know, the the problem with a five round regular season is obviously it spits out anomalies like we're seeing this year where a one-win team is very likely to make the finals or well look
0: at look at last year the, the a two-win team won the competition yeah,
1: exactly and and the other thing is that five weeks sports is about telling a story as much as anything all the narratives and plots and twists that happen across you know six good months of football in the rugby league community are what make the premiership race so fascinating you could have a team like Canberra that struggled for good portions of the regular season storm home and suddenly emerge as a dark horse for the Premiership. The Penrith Panthers title defence is that much more impressive because they've been so dominant across you know, 48, 49 rounds of regular season football. The regular season is what makes the postseason so good. And that's why the sooner the NLW adopts a double round robin format where both teams, sorry, every team gets a chance to play home and away or, or something similar, depending on scheduling and whatnot, uh, against every other team to build rivalries, to build narratives. It's going to be a massive step forwards for the code
0: yes yep so um, look just to just to now look at the specifics of this match um, you you mentioned Briganshaw she's just rugby league elite for oh, the Broncos absolutely. so she is the she is the key player in their team and I know there will be players that are playing off her and will have big moments but I think a lot of it starts and ends with her. And um, and then for the Eels, look, there's a, there's a couple of things that I've been really happy with. I, I think the selection of Rakia Horn in the centres has really shored up the defence on that side of the field, and um, and I think that what we've seen, and, and and this again speaks to the length of the season, is we've seen those glimpses of what Gail Broughton can bring at fullback, where she is going to be one of the absolute standouts in uh, NRLW. But getting that combination to and, and getting her involvement levels where we want it to be is the real challenge for the Parramatta team. And we flag that that might be an issue right at the start of the mm. year, that being able to read her And her being able to read the the team and be involved was was always going to be the question mark because she is a real outlier in terms of uh, a uniqueness in her talent because she comes from that rugby sevens background, that free-flowing sort of game and and picking the moments that come differently in rugby league because rugby league is far more structured. So that was always going to be an issue there. But we've seen, everyone's seen... Just what she is capable of delivering, so um, she's going to be key still again for Parramatta. And um, mate, I was really pleased that we started to see a glimpse of Rima Butler coming off yeah, the bench you've, last you've week. You her
1: as one of the watch through the preseason, and yes. we got to see her how explosive she can be with that try she scored, and not just a try, but she was seven runs for I think ninety nine meters. So an incredible, like, you know, a very very strong per rate metric there. And you know, she just brought a bit of aggro, a bit of aggression, a bit of power off the bench.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because as as you're just saying then, like there were, they were I came into the pre season after the preseason and, and watching them have their run against the Jersey Flag team and then, and the training and I said, Um, I'll will just start off with two names, Gail Broughton and Rima Butler. You know, one forward, one back to to watch and I know that there's plenty of players that are that are worthy of mentioning in that Parramatta team. But I you know they were just two that caught the eye very quickly in the uh in the preseason. And I'm so glad that uh Rima got that chance again because you know I think she can be a force in the NRL. I think she's got a just that way that she attacks the line in her carries is um, you know she's going to make an impact in the game, and and I hope Parramatta hold on to her for the next NRLW season. So obviously look, it's going to be a challenge for all teams to hold on to their players because you've got four new teams coming in, and uh, and what is it? We understand that every team was able to sign two marquee players yeah. for extended contracts past one year, players. yeah. But every everyone every other player is like on one year deals, and basically every player is up for grabs so there's going to be um four teams offering elite contracts to uh players out there who aren't currently on elite money contracts so there's a challenge for every team out there you you're going to they're going to lose players it'll be an interesting uh redistribution of talent at the end of this season so um Anyway, so just to this match, um, look, I've got a tip Parramatta to to get that job done. They've they've just gone so close in every match since that first round. Like literally, our for and against has only inched down a little bit lower. That's why we're still in the chance for uh, for getting the uh, a place in the finals just with a six point win over the Broncos. I mean, when you think about it, a six-point win over the Broncos gets them a finals berth. That tells you how close the the, uh, the those last three games have been. So, um, yeah, let's. I'll I'll, I'll tip the Eels to get a ten-point win over the Broncos. I'm not sure what the scoreline will be, but I'm going for a ten-point win.
1: Yeah, I'm going to go for a seven-point win. I think we'll get the six points and then take the Insurance Field goal and uh, book an improbable path to the finals. Uh, but yes, the Broncos, even though they're not the team that uh, won three straight NRLW premierships in a row from inception, they're not that team anymore with the loss of Upton and Boyle. They're still a very reasonable outfit. It was going to have to work hard for this win. But You can catch it at 12.05pm on Fox Sports or KO, so make sure to support the girls on the weekend. That's on Sunday. And I think that's about it. 60s, we've got a couple of games of sudden death football to watch this week. We're going to be live at Paralympics, win or loss on Friday night, and obviously hoping for the former. A win to book a not historic because Eels have obviously won a few premierships, but in the modern era, at least in in Brad Arthur's tenure, where he's done so much right to get to 80 minutes away from the grand final, would be absolutely massive for this team. And in saying that, you you can also see if we lose, if we win this week and then lose the following week, the fans will still complain no matter what. Because reality is, until we win a grand final, nothing's going to be good enough. But for now, I'm just hoping that we can get a, a date up in Townsville against the Cowboys.
0: Mate, what
2: else can I say? Go, you Eels.
1: So catch you guys on the next episode.